Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James and I'm joined in the commentary position by Zach Green. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the dismissal of Rebecca Long-Bailey from the Labour Shadow Cabinet, Boris Johnson's pledge to rebuild Britain's infrastructure, and the ongoing Liberal Democrat leadership election. Although first, Zach, off the bat, how are you doing and what has caught your attention over the past seven days? Uh, I'm good, thank you, Luke. Hope you're doing well as well. And good hello to everyone that's listened to this, or five of them, hopefully more. And this week, I think it's been quite a quite a quiet week, isn't it? There's nothing really. Well, we usually did the podcast on a Friday. We wait till Monday. Nothing really major's happened across the weekend. But as we've seen today, Keir Starmer's comments about the Black Lives Matter movement or moment as he said uh definitely caught my eye and here for sure and there's definitely lots to be talking about with regards to the Labour Party at the moment of course last week Rebecca Long-Bailey was dismissed from the shadow cabinet after retweeting an article that kind of critics have said has anti-semitic tropes in it and supporters of Rebecca Long-Bailey have said were simply kind of critical of Israel. Zach the article, of course, was in the Independent this weekend on Saturday. What was your? Re- I was at work at the time. What was kind of the reaction upon Rebecca Long Bailey sharing the article? Kind of what happened this weekend? Originally, because I remember seeing the article, but in it being tweeted and Rebecca Long Bailey being criticised. I actually remember it being criticised because of Maxine Peake saying, "Well, if you didn't vote Labour, you're as good as a Tory anyway." And the first criticism was, well, you're not going to win voters back by doing that. It was that kind of slinging that happened in 2019 that I think contributed somewhat to their massive loss. And as the day went on, you started to see a bit more of the article and obviously the alleged anti-Semitic comments that was put in the article had come out and eventually she was dismissed. And First of all, I think it was just gravely irresponsible for Rebecca Long-Bailey to endorse the article itself. If like we've already, she's already said it, oh, it's not about the comment; it's the article. But you're at the same time, it's quite basic stuff to read the article first, to look at everything in it, and then put judgment or not on it. So I think it was just quite irresponsible, and I think that was the general reaction from most people on social media. In the article, Miss Peake discussed the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. She said in the article, the tactics used by police in America kneeling on George Floyd's neck was learnt from seminars with Israeli secret services. The independent article also quoted the Israeli police denying Miss Peake's claims, saying there is no tactical protocol that caused to put pressure on the neck or airway. Later on Thursday, Miss Peake tweeted and basically said that her assumptions about the genesis of kind of kneeling on people's necks were kind of incorrect and it's important to remember and a lot of people a lot of kind of the supporters of Rebecca Lambetti on this um of which we can count John McDonnell among them have said there's nothing kind of anti-semitic about what was said because it was a criticism of the Israeli government or the way that kind of the Israeli state is set up and kind of the practices that involves. Um, the issue that comes with that, though, is the conspiratorial side of it to the idea that kind of everything in the world can be blamed on Israel 
is inherently anti-Semitic because it distorts reality in a way that it just simply blames people from a certain background of doing something which kind of in this instance isn't true. And I think that's kind of the distinction that people need to draw. It's quite a nuanced form of racism when we talk about these issues because, and again, the, the part of the article that has caused kind of this this saga among the Labour Party simply says the tactics used by police in America kneeling on George Floyd's neck that was learned from seminars with Israeli secret services and it's this kind of tendency or urge to blame the Israeli secret services and again the Israeli police have denied this anyway that is so problematic. Mm. And as well uh, as part uh, we, we were talking about conspiracy theories Rebecca Long-Bailey was obviously the runner-up of the Labour leadership contest. I think many consider her to be the, the pallbearer, of not just for Corbynism, but of the quite, not hard left, but quite solid left of the Labour Party. And her being removed from her post, I think, caused a lot of uproar in that respect as well, that if anything, this started out as a debate over anti-Semitism and it's kind of permeated into this you know idea of where the Labour Party are both ideologically and in terms of what they're aligning with and I think it, it's, a def, it's definitely a difficult one to call because I think Keir Starmer from the outset of his leadership has said we have to be very strong on anti-Semitism there's obviously a problem in the party the Jewish communities do, do not trust us and many MPs who defected away from Labour, like Luciana Berger, did not feel safe in their party. And it's quite the headline, I think, from this is that Keir Starmer has finally had an opportunity to put all these words, all of this condemnation, all the strong words into action. It was done very quickly. He demanded an apology that was refused and he got rid of her straight away. Didn't let it fester. I think it was a real statement of intent by Keir Starmer that is not just grabbing the problems the Labour Party has on the surface, but by the roots. And I think we can all welcome that. What I would say as well is that a lot of people would have read the article and then looked at kind of the outrage that had started to spread on social media and kind of in mainstream news articles as well, and would have thought, I don't really understand what the issue we have with what is said because of course kind of the quote that is so kind of problematic in this issue and is kind of the cause of all of this doesn't mention religion in any sense and that's the issue as well and so people will look at this and say well I don't really understand I don't get it how can it be racist if I if it doesn't kind of like isn't right there in front of you kind of thing the important thing to remember though and the reason why this argument kind of in this instance can't be applied is because Rebecca Long-Bailey was a senior figure in a party that had spent the last four years ripping it to pieces, ripping itself into pieces, rather, over anti-Semitism. They've done countless things, whether or not they went far enough or whether or not they kind of genuinely believed in it is another thing altogether. But the Labour Party has spent so long talking about anti-Semitism, she simply should have known better. Mm. And we talk about this kind of with Black Lives Matter as well, is that it's okay to learn and it's okay to recognise that you previously held a view that is wrong or immoral or prejudiced. And then you can alter that by learning kind of new things. 
that's okay. But the issue is in, in Rebecca Longbaby's example is that she should have already known because, and as I say, the party has spent the last four years talking about this. So to the general public, to some people who aren't well-versed in the issues of anti-Semitism, the idea that kneeling on George Floyd's neck might have come from Israel in itself doesn't seem kind of on a surface level to be that bad because they might argue, well, if she'd said Spain, would it have been anti-Spanish? Mm. But of course, that's we know, not... the, we know the connotations of when you criticise the Israeli state because you can obviously criticise the Israeli state without being anti-Semitic. I think that's that's a given. But in terms of, I think you got it spot on when you said you know, this is quite a very nuanced, very subliminal form of racism in a way. And I think it was these kind of tropes. That's what it is. I think on the surface, people go, how is it anti-Semitic? It's more the tropes that are associated with the comment, I think. For sure. And we're not really going to be talking about this today, but the Black Lives Matter UK Twitter account this weekend, I believe, or might have been on Friday, tweeted kind of support for kind of the Palestinian cause. And while a lot of stuff in the tweet was factually correct and spoke about lots of issues in the region, again, it fell foul of the issue of buying into this conspiracy theory. And it basically said, the, the quote, I don't have it in front of you right now, but it says along the lines of the British media has been gagged from talking about this. And again, the issue with, and again, it, it's not necessarily something that you notice straight away. It's not overtly kind of racist in that way. But when you think about it, and I read a, I read a thread about it from someone who's Jewish and kind of knows these issues, the idea that they got across in their thread was basically, well, what they're saying by saying that the UK media can't talk about this because they've been gagged is buying into the idea that Jewish people in some way or nefarious form run the world, which of course isn't true. And that is the anti-Semitic element of that tweet, which I think now might have been deleted anyway. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of, I think we've covered kind of the issue of anti-Semitism with regards to the actual tweet itself. In terms of the fallout, in terms of what Rebecca Mondelli said at the time, when she retweeted it, she said, Maxine Peake is an absolute diamond. And again, you can't really quote retweet something with that caption and then walk away from the contents of the thing that has been tweeted. So like, on a very simplistic level, in my Twitter description, I have views my own, uh, these views are my own likes and retweets, not necessarily endorsements, because I retweet things that I don't agree with. Yeah. But then if you caption it in glowing terms about the person who's been interviewed, you then can't disassociate yourself from the, with from the, the entirety of it. Yeah. Yeah. With the ideas that they express, because whether or not it was kind of on purpose or, or whatever, however we want to phrase that, the fact is Rebecca Long Bailey should have known better. Um, and speaking of someone who, again, I think is someone who sh should know better, so former Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell, who, of course, supported Rebecca Long Bailey in her leadership bid, said throughout, throughout discussion of, of anti-Semitism, it's always been said criticism of practices of the Israeli state is not anti-Semitic. I don't believe, therefore, this article or Rebecca Long-Bailey should have been sacked. I stand in solidarity with her. 
Unite General Secretary um, Lem McCluskey, whose union supported, again, Rebecca long Bailey in the leadership bid, said her sacking was an unnecessary overreaction to a confected row. Oh. Um, it's quite something, isn't it, the way that the left of the Labour Party and the supporters of Rebecca long Bailey have taken this because it strikes me again and this might come across slightly kind of overly politically political with regards to winning elections but of course the main function of a political party is to win elections so then you can implement change that that's the whole point of politics and it's another example of the left of the Labour Party just not engaging in politics because in examples like this, just don't retweet the article and it would have, yeah. wouldn't have been an issue because you wouldn't have been associated with the things that, that it contained. And the issue that they have is they're very much wrapped up in these things. So, for example the Labour Party front bench didn't really have much to say about Dominic Cummins because it was just a case of letting the Conservatives own the issue. And again, on anti-Semitism, the Labour Party has got itself into all kinds of bother by retweeting an article that really... And it's again, it's something that she shouldn't have retweeted because it basically said that anyone who didn't vote for Labour at the last election was a Tory. Mm. Um, and it's just bad politics. Exactly. Ultimately, it's just ludicrous politics. So from that perspective, can you have someone on your front bench who has openly retweeted and endorsed something that contained anti-Semitic tropes and was anti-Semitic? Of course no. Of course not. On the other hand, can you have someone on your front bench who is so politically naive to tweet something that would alienate all of the people you lost at the last election? Again, it's just, again, it's not a sackable offence. But you've got to sit there and think, the people on the left of the Labour Party aren't doing themselves any favours. And it's also on the backdrop of um, the inquiry into the Labour Party more widely on anti-Semitism. This report is coming and the mood, the mood, the mood music from people associated with the Labour Party is that this report's going to be very, very harsh on the Labour Party in terms of how they've dealt with anti-Semitism. We've already got like little droplets of the uh, dying days of the Corbyn era where, you know, Labour Party members were kind of left to do their own thing, even though they engaged with quite anti-Semitic views. It's kind of, as you said about the left, refusing to play politics. They're just trying to keep to this student politics kind of thing. I saw John Trickett, for example, completely defend Rebecca Long Bay and then engage in this rant against Starmer and his front bench about how it's a conspiracy to eliminate that section of the party and more widely this is uh, my view is that the reason there's been such an outrage because I think it's dawned on the Labour left now that their influence has dwindled to a point where Starmer can afford to do this he's got the backing of the membership which Long Bailey enthusiasts and those associated with Corbyn always love to use against people in the party well you know we've got the we've got the membership on our side what have you got it's kind of flipped over that Starmer now has I think a bigger mandate than Corbyn did in 2015 and he's doing what needs to be done for the party to a look electable b 
eradicate everything that I think contributed to their loss. And they've all realised, I think, that they've got no place at the top table of the Labour Party anymore in the way they did under Corbyn. What do you make of the idea? Um, and again, I saw this on social media. I think it was one of the journalists who tweeted this. That the whole kind of a Rebecca Long Bailey saga this weekend was basically born out of the fact that she was only included in the shadow cabinet so that Secure Starmer, when she did make a mistake or did do something like this, could then sack her. Do you think that was part of the reason she was included in the shadow cabinet in the first place? I think Starmer ran his campaign, I think, like all of them, on this unity ticket, which I think was a bit, you know, head in the clouds when you consider how fragmented the Labour Party is, as with any political party, I might add. But in terms of her inclusion, education is quite an important part of not just government, but at the moment, the coronavirus outbreak, you know, education is a huge battleground between Labour and the Conservatives, and that will play out in itself. So I don't really buy into the fact that she was only put there to appease the Corbyn left, because I think where it's such a high-ranking position in the shadow cabinet, it, it would be a disservice just to do that. I think it was more putting the, the left on notice that, OK, look, we're going to give you a, a senior p- part of our policy discussion as we go forward. But where Rebecca Longbaid has completely blown it, I think, the idea of a conspiracy kind of falls flat on its face, that they were given a chance to redeem themselves after the 2019 disaster. And this is how they repay, I think, Starmer's faith in the left of the party. Sure. And kind of in terms of the Labour Party, in terms of Sakia Starmer, do you think he dealt with this well? It was quite fast. It's complete departure from how Corbyn probably would have. And and you've seen the public acclaim Starmer has from outside the Labour Party, from many Jewish communities saying that this is such a welcome relief that this was dealt with very quickly. But on the terms of balance, and this is only the first step, this is not going to be an overnight thing where suddenly Labour are not going to be a, associated with anti-Semitism because they they sacked the shadow minister for being stupid. It's going to take a long, long time to really cleanse itself. And with this report coming, I think that will only... Things will get worse in that sense before they get a lot better. But now he's already shown that he's willing to completely tackle this issue head on. And those who oppose this approach have kind of retreated already. It shows you it's a battle I think he thinks he can win and that he probably will win in the end. I agree. And I think the situation in the Labour Party, this is this is meant to be a party, kind of a government in waiting. Mm. So they need to be clinical. And if you contrast Boris Johnson's management of Again, it's sort of, I don't think had had the Rebecca Long Bailey tweet rumbled on for a week, I don't think it would have cut through in the same way that Dominic Cummings did. Um, because I don't think, and again, I don't, I don't think this is right. And again, I, it, it should cut through. Issues about racism should cut through to the public, but I don't think this one would have. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't had had it rumbled on, rumbled on, and rumbled on. 
it would have, of course, been an issue for the Labour Party. But the difference, the difference between the treatment of Dominic Cummings and the treatment of Rebecca Long-Bailey was really simple. It was abundantly clear that Rebecca, Rebecca Long-Bailey made a mistake in tweeting the article and had to go because of the things she tweeted. Mm. At the same time, it was abundantly clear that Dominic Cummings had to go because he broke the rules that he helped to craft and the rules that prevented people from seeing their dying relatives. It was it was abundantly clear. It was very, very obvious. It's the same and, with Robert Jenrick as well. Of course. And you have on one hand, Boris Johnson, who seems desperate to hang on to these kind of characters, and on the other, and again, we can question whether or not Rebecca Mongali was there as a token kind of to the left of the party or not. I think that's irrelevant in this case. Keir Starmer was fast off the line and very, very sure-footed in controlling the narrative with regards to this issue. The Conservative Party in recent weeks, in recent weeks, in recent weeks rather, certainly... You could, you could, you could say both there, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, speaking of the Conservative Party, the Prime Minister has lined up, or lined out plans rather, to spend lots and lots of money on schools, roads, and hospitals. Of course, this kind of links to the things mentioned in the Conservative 2019 manifesto, but it was also a consequence of the coronavirus pandemic. At this point, I would normally run through lots of details about what they've kind of announced. Um, it's tricky to do so because <laughs> the Conservative Party hasn't really said what they're planning to do. However, this is a quote that I found online. So the government has already announced emergency spending and tax measures worth an estimated 133 billion so far during the pandemic. Today, it revealed an additional 1 billion injection for rebuilding 50 schools in England starting next year. So of course we had the infamous manifesto pledge last year that we'd have 50 new hospitals. Um, we've not quite got to the stage where we're scrutinizing whether these 50 schools are are fictitious or not um but what do you make of what the prime minister has said about kind of spending more money to get through what he has called a disaster with regards to the coronavirus pandemic it, it's all well and good saying all of this and it's definitely welcome i think we are in such a precarious position economically that i think the conservatives are beginning to learn that the, the, the uh, stimulus is a much better approach than austerity and boris johnson forever this Heineken Tory that we've been talking about trying to depart his government from the last nine years of Tory government I think is noble I think it's the right thing but inevitably these billions and billions of pounds are going to be have to be found somewhere and I don't think they're kind of equating financial fantasy with economic reality because this is going to be the worst recession since 1706. To just keep saying we're going to spend billions and billions and billions of pounds, Britain's a low-tax country, we're going to give people VAT holidays, people are going to be on the furlough forever. Obviously not forever, but you know what I mean. It kind of, it's saying what people want to hear rather than what's going to happen. So I think we have to treat these spending promises with caution, but also concern. For sure. And on on Sunday afternoon, 
there was lots of talk about this on kind of the Sunday morning shows. Um, one, one of the person, one of the people who was on, of course, was Ed Miliband. So yeah, indeed. So Mr. Miliband told the BBC's Andrew Marr show that there needed to be a bridge between the end of the furlough scheme and a job creation programme. He also criticised the government for not announcing a summer budget this year when the UK is facing potentially the worst recession, as you say, Zach, in 300 years. Addressing reports that the PM wants to help areas previously affected by austerity, Mr Miliband replied, there is a grand canyon between his rhetoric and the reality. Is there indeed a grand canyon between the two? Absolutely. I think this pandemic has shown Tory economic policy for the last decade in its most naked form, quite grotesque. You're seeing communities up in the north that have really not been able to cope with austerity in the past. Their frailties in both council funding and also in general public services be completely exposed for the shambles. I was going to say something else then, but for the shambles that they are. And to keep saying you're going to level up the country, well, that again, all well and good. But if you're looking at the real difference between how you're going to fund it and how what the funding is going to do, you're talking not just billions, but hundreds of billions to level up the country. Because as you know, London is the heartbeat of this economy. If London's underfunded, if London is in any way seen to be poorer, then the entire country will suffer. So it's all quite populist rabble rather than actual policy. It's just billions and billions, but what, where are the billions going to go? Where are they going to come from? And how do they actually see it improving? Because you've seen the Conservatives for years talk about no magic money tree. You know, it's all, it's more management rather than finance. And they always use the NHS to say, look, of course, the NHS needs extra funding, but it's all about management. Funding's just part of it. But now they're trying to redial their approach. They're saying, oh, everywhere needs money now. You're thinking what has actually changed and how it's going to change. In order to keep what was once the red war on side, in your opinion, what what should the Conservative Party be spending this money on? I think education, definitely education, because I think in these red wall areas, it's where the biggest grievances and, and really the resonance with their manifesto pledges, you know, more police on the street, uh, more schools, um, more nurses, and really like better paid jobs. These are the places where I think they genuinely saw an opportunity. Uh, hopefully the Conservatives didn't really talk about figures, whereas the Labour Party did. I think it scared lots of people off because it was a lot of money. Whereas with the Conservatives, I think they gave, what was it, 50,000 new nurses? Like Those kind of figures where people from places like Bury North and Sedgefield can go, oh, I can resonate with that. We do need more nurses. That seems a sensible target. Let's just do that. So I think you've got education, definitely the health service, but more so public services in terms of public transport. We're lucky in London to have quite decent public services. Whereas I think the more north you go, the more flimsy their buses and trains can be. So I think they definitely have to spend it on transport and public services and education, health, obviously health because of what's happening here. They're going to be they're going to have to learn from this pandemic about 
how local health authorities have coped with this virus. And I don't think they've coped very well. As you can see, the R rate during the pandemic kind of not even out. I think you had a lot more in the North West than you did in London. London fell very quickly. Whereas I think you had the North West, the North East, the Midlands, they kind of stayed at around 0.7 to 1.1. I mean, we're seeing that decrease now, but as you, as you can tell, hospital admissions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, kind of is the elephant in the room. What are you going to do about it? You have to spend on public services and health. And of course, we speak at a time where there are lots and lots of um, kind of rumours and reports that suggest that Leicester and Leicestershire could go under some some form of continued lockdown or increased lockdown as a result of a local spike in coronavirus cases. And as you say, to keep seats up in the north of England, the Conservative Party needs to come up with a plan with regards to infrastructure that is genuinely convincing to people that doesn't then cost people in the south their votes. So, for instance, we both live in a very kind of conservative seat at home, although we live in different seats. So I'm from the Romford constituency, which is very kind of, it's not an affluent seat, but it's still conservative. It's right on the edge of London, kind of Essex board. Essex border and it's been conservative since I think 2005 Andrew Rosendale has been in situ um and kind of my parents my family for example completely reject HS2 out of hand as a complete waste of money um and I think the conservative party have to be wary of how they work the north-south divide because there are people in the south who will look at for example hs2 which will increase links between the north and london and the midlands and london and so forth and will say well you can already get to birmingham in just over an hour you can get to coventry in an hour kind of at the minute so do, do they need this extra rail line is it worth destroying all this beautiful english countryside um and again of course that's not it's not a view i share but it's a concern that people will have in those seats. And you talk about kind of target seats that the Conservatives will have kind of in the Oxford area. And again, that's that's a place that's going to be affected by a HS2 and the environmental concerns with that. So whatever the Conservatives do, they need to invest in infrastructure that doesn't offend the South because they need to be very wary. And we're going to talk about the Liberal Democrats next, because if the Liberal Democrats elect a leader that keeps them to the centre you might have a situation at the next election where the Labour Party is doing very, very well in its constituencies. You'll have the Liberal Democrats in a good position again, because when the Labour Party are doing well, the Liberal Democrats tend to do better in those elections uh, in, in comparison to when the Labour Party aren't doing well, for example, 2019. Um, so in those kind of areas, in potential Conservative Liberal Democrat marginals, that's something they'll, they'll need to be wary of. Mm. And especially as well in London, um, the Conservatives have always, have the past couple of elections now have been quite dismal in terms of London seats. And you're looking at Crossrail, for example, it's, I think, I don't know how many years now we've had the delay with Crossrail and Crossrail 2. It's another project that's costing a lot of money. It has gone way over its estimated costs. It's another Example, say for example, the Conservatives do sack off HS2, 
criticism will then go, well, hang on a minute, why is Crossrail and Crossrail 2 going ahead, but HS2 isn't? I think the solution we're kind of alluding to here is, in terms of having this abstract, let's connect the north and the south up, you kind of need to connect the north up first together. So in terms of, I personally, I would scrap HS2, because I think the, the cost kind of, and cost of environmental uh, consequences would be quite stark. You can kind of connect connect up places in the north, Birmingham, Newcastle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I use Birmingham just because it's on the Midlands, but the, the idea is if you can connect up the north, the existing connection from north to south doesn't really need to change. So I think the Conservatives, if they don't, I think they're missing a trick in terms of, let's talk about interconnectivity rather than connectivity, because you kind of get lost in translation with that. For sure. And it's important to remember with Crosswell, and we speak as two people who live in a part of London that has seen house prices rise at a dramatic rate prior to, of course, COVID-19, because of Crossrail. And you look at kind of what's been going on with Crossrail. It was given royal assent in 2008, and it's potentially not going to be finished until 2022 with an extra station coming online in 2026. Um so you have a situation where the government, and again, at, at the time in 2008, both the Conservatives and Labour Party committed to Crossrail in the 2010 manifestos. So it's an issue with regards to the North-South divide, where at some point the Conservatives need to commit to something in the North. And I think the easiest way, if I'm being blunt, to be honest, apologies as a car, drive car, um, <laughs> the easiest way to win back votes with regards to infrastructure is invest in roads and invest in public transport, but invest in buses and things like this, because, and again, I'm quite fortunate where I am in Coventry because it's such a student heavy city. They've had to, they've been forced basically to invest in decent buses, especially kind of on the student routes. But I appreciate that as you go into the outskirts of Coventry in the less studenty areas, it's a completely different story. So I can only imagine what public transport is like if you go to somewhere in the north that is just a northern town it doesn't have a student culture it doesn't have that reason to invest in public transport so that would be a vote winner in lots and lots of the seats that the conservatives will be hoping to keep hold of in my opinion anyway and of course schools as well it's so important that they invest in schools do you think and we've kind of already addressed this but do you think the conservatives have much if at all any kind of credibility when they talk about investing in schools and in education and in hospitals for example it's a difficult one isn't it because we've seen the conservatives i don't know if you remember the the surcharge for example for those working in the nhs eventually was dropped but the conservatives seem to have this kind of have their cake and eat it in terms of the health service you know they they like to criticize the health service for all its failings and then when people say well, you've not been funding it properly and they go but actually we've been giving record funding but if you look at it in other ways and i think like you said with intra- infrastructure that when they just have to commit to it same thing with the health service we've seen that the conservatives can win elections by putting an abstract number but a number on funding and if they were to do this for the health service i think it would be a vote winner to say look we're going to throw x billion at the health service that is 
x hundred million per year or something like that then i think they'd get a bit more credibility with the voters in terms of their track record it, it's quite a dismal one isn't it waiting times are rocketing i think a really sad consequence of this pandemic is cancer screenings and that they're expecting a lot more deaths from cancer because of the unavailability of our health services during the pandemic when it was at its absolute peak so i think in terms of their track record it's rather unimpressive but as we've already said boris johnson wants to divorce himself from the conservative government of old it's a big challenge to do because for a part of that he was kind of at the heart of it but also his ministers were also a part of that 2010 to 19 era of cameron and may so i think it will be a challenge it'll be very interesting to see what he does but i think we've missed the real trick in we're talking about billions and billions of pounds, how it's going to be paid for. And the idea of tax, I think there's a rumour going around that Rishi Sunak wants to cut VAT very temporarily and so the autumn budget. Again, it's paying for these public services. Do we pay it through mass borrowing or do we pay it from higher taxation? It's a big issue that's going to be coming up over the next couple of months. And it might be something that Labour and the Conservatives kind of take to the local elections next year about council tax. That, sure, everyone wants better funded and better public services, but who pays for it and how do we pay for it is going to be a real big question over over, over time. Sure. We talk about now and a lot of what the Conservatives are talking about with regards to investment it has to be said that it's obviously contingent upon from the coronavirus crisis and if you look at the figures and compare kind of the rate of the uk's bounce back compared to countries like spain italy um, and france the recovery has been slower in the uk and it could be a situation where we have lots and lots of people out of work by the end of this year and it will be a case of saying well how are the government going to respond to this because of course you could kind of go down the the new deal route and build lots of national infrastructure projects but of course <laughs> that mm. so ideologically that poses questions and it's it's going to be really from a kind of politics excluded standpoint to see how the conservatives respond further down the line um, I want to draw your comment on a slightly less serious topic, if you don't mind. Um, in two words, Boris Johnson or Sakia Starmer, <laughs> who would be able to do 50 press-ups first? Keir Starmer. <laughs> I'm not seeing a lot of I'm not seeing a lot of love for Boris Johnson on this one. If, yeah. if Boris Johnson makes it to five, I'll be very impressed. There's a reason why Dominic Raab is, go is going to be the designated survivor. <laughs> yeah, and again, I think um, if, if you're not sure what we're referring to, because I couldn't quite believe this when I saw the article either. Um, on, I think it was the Mail on Sunday, there's a, there's a photo on the front page of Boris Johnson doing press-ups. Um, and Sakia Starmer has, on, on Monday as we record the episode, has basically challenged him to a prep up competition at PMQs is my understanding. Um, so again, and 
this kind of speaks to a more serious issue as well of this ridiculous <laughs> macho bravado, bravado rather, um, with regards to leadership in Westminster. It's just ludicrous, and it's just like the number of press-ups that you can do is totally irrelevant to your ability to run the country. And again, quite a lot of people have drawn the com comparison between uh, Boris Johnson's kind of Mal on Sunday front page and compared it to Vladimir Putin doing press-ups at ice hockey practice. And it's just like <laughs> the urge for, and again, Sakia Stahl has been caught up on this in this example, but populist leaders to kind of, exert and exaggerate kind of their own physical prowess i just find somewhat bizarre in the current circumstances a party that i don't imagine will be doing press-up competitions to determine its future is the liberal democrats so of course the liberal democrat leadership election is ongoing at the moment we're still currently in the nomination phase although we already know which two members of parliament will be on the ticket in the election itself. So of course, Leila Moran, the member of parliament for Oxford West and Abington is going up against Sir Ed Davey, the current acting co-leader of the Liberal Democrats, who's the MP for Kingston and Surbiton down in London. So my question to you, Zach, is how important is the Liberal Democrat leadership election at this time? I think it's more important for the other two parties rather than the Liberal Democrats themselves, if I'm going to, going to be honest, because as we're going to talk about in this section, this will decide the destination where the Liberal Democrats will end up ideologically and policy wise, which, as you alluded to earlier, the more the better the Liberal Democrats do, on average, the better the Labour Party do. And I think where I've not followed the leadership election quite with a fine comb, you can kind of gather from it that wherever they end up, there's going to be a lot of discourse around how and who they'll be supporting with the current polls on average. I mean, I'm going to post an outcast uh, Wednesday of the June polls, but it looks as if there's going to be a very slim hung parliament. You're going to look at really... The Liberal Democrats as your natural party of coalition, as they've proved, but also really who they're going to, going to support and why. And with Moran and Davy, it kind of looks like not polar opposites, but at least there's a bit of a difference between them in terms of where they see the Liberal Democrats ending up. For sure. And it's important to kind of summarise each of the two candidates' positions. So Liberal Democrat... Leadership candidate Lena Moran has said that she wants to push the party to the left, making them even more radical than the Labour Party. The booklet that Lena Moran has made with regards to the kind of promoting her ideas proposes a range of left-wing policies. These include a new human rights partnership with the EU, free universal broadband, and taking over private health resources to clear a backlog of NHS operations caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Sarah Davy, on the other hand, um, his five-point plan, or one of the five-point plans that he's published on his website, includes to require employers to make reasonable adjustments for carers, helping carers who wish to work to combine kind of a job with caring um, to boost carers' allowance, so on and so forth. So there's lots of stuff kind of on his website and he focuses on two areas. And the main difference, and you speak about this as well, is that 
Lena Moran seems to see the Liberal Democrats as this party that can rival or kind of mop up some of Labour's seats on the left versus Sir Red Davy, who kind of sees the party more in its centrist liberal tradition. Um, how do you see this going, Zach? Who do you think will win the election? I think Ed, Ed Davey ran last year, didn't he? And it didn't end well for him. And I think his appeal to Liberal Democrat members would be, we will not win if we go to the left and try and rival Labour, because I think just uh, getting up my spreadsheet, my infamous spreadsheet, I must say, of target seats for each party, from a a mathematical perspective, all their seats, all their target seats, bar what, Sheffield Hallam, Cambridge and Hampstead and Kilburn are all Tory seats. And to try and eat into a Labour vote, which is trying to recover from its worst ever results since 1935, I think is a bit of a misstep in terms of their seats, because I think, as as Ed Davies points out about keeping to the centre, is that that's where they're going to win seats. They might win more votes if they go more left wing. But as you've seen, you you can't really win an election or have some sort of substantial you know, oh, we've done very well at that election if you can't have the, the seats to back it up. So I think I think Ed Davey might just about win. I think it'll be a close one, but the effects of a Moran victory will be very interesting for how Liberal Democrats will poll. Because I think at the moment they're, they're averaging about 6%, which is a dismal, dismal return. And I think the further they go to the left, they might be just seen as a not even as a protest vote, but more in the bracket of the Green Party, where they're never going to get into government. So why would they vote for really off-the-wall policies? What I don't really understand about the Liberal Democrat leadership election is I I don't I don't get the desire from Labour Moran to move the party to the left to kind of rival the Labour Party kind of in that way because there's no need to quite frankly because kind of if we put ourselves in this state of mind and if the liberal democrats were to go further left on the political spectrum than the labor party you'd be looking to mop up votes from people who liked the policies and liked of jeremy corbyn um that's essentially what you'd be doing by going to the left of kind of where the labor party sits now Uh, the issue that we have with that the issue that the Liberal Democrats has with that is the people of that persuasion, the people who kind of the Rebecca Long Bailey's of this world, the Jeremy Gorman's of this world, the John McDonald's of this world, look at the De- Liberal Democrats and just basically think closet Tory. Mm. So I don't understand the electoral strategy or logic of trying to appeal to people who are at the moment completely opposed to any idea of, of voting or supporting for the Liberal Democrats because there were examples at the last election where, and again, I think both parties were guilty of this, where Labour and the Liberal Democrats should have worked together. Um, and you've been vociferous about this on social media, to be fair. Um, it should have worked together. The seats in London, um, kind of Westminster being one example, where they could have worked together and won seats. 
but they didn't because people wouldn't vote either for Labour or wouldn't vote for the Liberal Democrats. Um, the idea of moving to the left and rivaling Labour would make sense if the party was still in crisis. So if it was a situation where Labour was still pulling itself limb for limb over anti-Semitism or another issue like that, it would maybe make sense for the Liberal Democrats to try and move over and then to take those votes. But that isn't that isn't the situation that politics is in now. It's like we've got a very, very new Labour-like leadership style with the Labour Party versus a Conservative Party that, of course, is still, in many respects, coming to terms with its own Brexit position on the kind of right side of the party. So it, it seems logical, at least to me, that you would follow a path of least resistance and go through the centre and kind of ride off the town coats of the Labour Party. Mm. And as well, if Moran pulls the Liberal Democrats to the left, I think it will help Keir Starmer a lot because the association that people have with Labour still, even though they've changed the leadership, is, I think as Starmer pointed out in his many video interviews with um, people in areas where Labour done really bad, was people just didn't think their policies were realistic, uh, whether or not that was down to the leadership or not. And if the Liberal Democrats go on that ticket of free broadband for everyone that, that obviously went down like a cup of cold sick with loads of voters, is that Labour can turn around and say, well, why would you vote for the Liberal Democrats when you can vote for a party with realistic policies? It kind of inverts on itself. And I think it would just be, it would be really bad for the Liberal Democrats to go down that route because there's not enough target seats for them to win. And they'd only be eating into Labour seats that might be disaffected with the, the Starmer leadership, say, down the line. It kind of, I think it's kind of self-defeating, isn't it? Because their place on the political spectrum is firmly on the centre. And I think they're still coming to terms with being scarred from probably the coalition years. To go left wing to try and indicate that they're not the coalition of 2010 to 15 or that they're a real alternative, I think would there's better ways of doing it and the seats like Wimbledon, Carshalton, Cheltenham and Winchester are not going to be persuaded I think by this leaning to the left because these are Tory seats, these seats do not go from red to blue or blue to red, they go from blue to orange and then maybe orange to blue. It's important to remember as well and this was a tweet I was I was going to talk to you about. So this was 23rd of June, Election Maps UK posted a general election nowcast kind of this time last year. And it had the Labour Party on 231 seats, the Brexit Party on 174 seats, the Conservatives. And again, this speaks to how, frankly, bizarre this, this time last year was in our politics on 103 seats, the Liberal Democrats on 69 seats and the SNP on 50 seats up in Scotland. Um, and the, the reason I mention this is because politics can change so, so quickly. And the obvious example would be the dramatic rise of, of the independent group for change or whatever they were called in the end um, and the dramatic fall that they experienced. So everything can, a week, a week in politics is a long time. But the idea that the Liberal Democrats could be successful by becoming the Labour Party just seems so kind of bizarre and so far-fetched. 
that I struggle to work with that, if I'm being totally honest. And as well, sorry, just as a bit of an attachment to that, back in 2010, when there was talks of the coalition, everyone was saying, well, your natural leaning is towards Labour. And obviously they ended up going with the Conservatives. A big criticism Labour could probably throw in their face was, well, why do you want to be like Labour now when you could have been back in 2010 to avoid all of this austerity, et cetera, et cetera? It kind of leaves himself open to attack, whether or not it's a realistic attack, I, I don't know, but it's kind of, it would play into Labour's hand as well as the Conservatives. So I think if they go more towards the left, it, it just could end in disaster and they could be even further from any sort of power and influence than they were even at 2019. The interesting thing about the Liberal Democrats is it's it's a party with a lot of potential. And especially if you look kind of at seats in the Southwest and at seats kind of around Oxford and places like that, that have a strong kind of leaning towards Europe, a strong kind of a centrist persuasion of kind of a liberal set of ideals. The Liberal Democrats are a party that could appeal to people, and, and especially in some metropolitan seats that aren't kind of Labour-heavy as well. It's, it's seats that Liberal Democrats could do well in. And I think the coalition was so, so, so damaging to the Liberal Democrats because of tuition fees. And I think a lot of it can be boiled down not, not to austerity, although, of course, I'm, I'm not downplaying the impact that austerity had on the country and on people. But in terms of the Liberal Democrat losing its base and losing the faith of people whose votes they had borrowed, for want of a better word, it was the tuition fees thing. Because, of course, when Mania was at its peak, people, especially young people, young voters, were turned on by the Liberal Democrats. They liked their message. And then you had the situation where they increased or were party to increasing tuition fees. And that's such an issue for them, because now you're at a situation of going, OK, so what do the Liberal Democrats stand for? And going forwards, it will be so important. And I think this leadership election is probably the most important in Liberal Democrats recent history. It's so important that they get it right, because whatever comes next, the Liberal Democrats need to have good leadership. Because and I think. And again, Ed, Ed Miliband was asked this on Sunday. He. Andrew Marr said, I'm going to ask you a harsh question. Is Sakia Stalmer a better leader of the Labour Party than you were? And he immediately said yes. And it's so important that whoever replaces Joe Swinson is a better leader than Joe Swinson was because Swinson did terribly. And it was she was a, just a disaster in terms of her messaging as well to say that she was going to be the next Prime Minister. And it, it kind of so away from reality that it really discredited the Liberal Democrats as a party, I think. It was a catastrophe for the Liberal Democrats. And again, I don't, I don't think the idea that she was the Liberal Democrat candidate for Prime Minister cut through to lots of the public. I think it cut through to the kind of people who listen to our podcast and it cut through to people like us. But I don't think that was kind of a major thing. What I do think the Liberal Democrats had an issue with and continue to have issues with, is the Liberal Democrat handling of the media is atrocious. So, for instance, after the coalition, the Liberal Democrats were basically blamed for all of the austerity and the Conservatives' kind of image wasn't impacted by that. And 
the, the Liberal Democrats went into the coalition because they felt, whether you agree with this or not, they felt that it was the right thing to do because the Conservatives had won more seats, they'd won more votes than Labour, so thus it was natural for them to support the largest party. And there's an element of that that, that is, in essence, democracy. It makes sense that the largest party, the party with the most number of votes, should be the party in charge. The issue that you encounter, though, and again, I think it's starting to change because I think the first part of the post is weakening as an institution in our politics. I think we're starting to move away from this two-party idea. The issue that the Liberal Democrats had is that in going into coalition with the Conservatives, they tainted everything about the Liberal Democrat image. So going forwards, and again, this is why Sir Red Davy is problematic as well, even though I'm on record as saying that I don't think Lena Moran's strategy is wise. At the same time, I don't think it's good for the Liberal Democrats to have a party leader who, as we speak, has a negative um, opinion poll rating. But again, I think that's a lot to do with the don't knows, although, again, it's not looking good for Ed Davey in the polls. Mm. Um, and of course, most importantly, someone who was involved in the coalition. That's the biggest issue. The party cannot claim to be laundering itself of, of, of the wrongs it committed in the coalition by electing someone who was involved in the coalition. Um, so going forward, it's going to be an absolute mess, to be honest, the leadership election, because you'll have people in the Liberal Democrats who find themselves in the political centre and won't want Layla Moran to win, regardless of whether or not they think she would be a more charismatic leader or a better leader or would do better kind of with the press or would be more popular. <laughs> and at the same time, you'll have have people who won't want that left-wing kind of message will feel queasy about voting for Ed Davey because he was tainted by the things that Liberal Democrats voted for in coalition. So going, going forwards, the Liberal Democrats have a true existential crisis to deal with. I think the optics as well of having a Davy as leader would be quite bad because you'd have Boris Johnson, Uxbridge and Ricelip South, Keir Starmer, Holborn and Pancras East, and Ed Davy in his seat, which you said was in London, I couldn't remember the name of it. The optics of having the three major parties all in London claiming to be all united in trying to unite the country and, you know, giving a lot to the North. I think from an outsider's perspective, people go, you know, this is the reason people hate politics. These are just people in London who are making all the decisions who want all the votes. So I think even just from that perspective, if Davy was to win, that's a real issue that he's going to face is people go to the Liberal Democrats because it's a change from the two parties. Nick Clegg got it spot on in 2010 in his first debate when he said, I don't believe things should be the way they are. And that's that cannot happen You know, with the Liberal Democrats. You know, this is an alternative. People might just say to the Liberal Democrats with their Davy, we'll go, you're in London. What is actually different about the Liberal Democrats? Why can't I vote for the other two parties? So it's a really dangerous, dangerous tightrope tight to walk. And I think it'll be, like you say, an existential crisis for the Lib Dems as this goes forward. My final point of the show, and I'm going to end on a slightly more optimistic tone for the Liberal Democrats, is next season, next season, next year at 
the 2021 um, local elections and by-elections and so on and so forth, the Liberal Democrats are good on local issues. The Liberal Democrats are very, very good locally. They're good at campaigning locally. They're good at getting their message across locally. And ultimately, it's because people kind of at lower-end elections believe that they can vote for Liberal Democrats because they might win and because they might do a good job. So if if the Liberal Democrats can go out in 2021, make a positive impact and say, this is what we stand for, these are the things that we have stood for, we still believe in liberal values, we still believe in the European Union, although, of course, at the moment, that's kind of off the table, it, it could be okay. It really could be okay. And if you look towards 2021, you'll have the London mayoral elections, and you look at it and you say, kind of, Sadiq Khan and a lot of the stuff that he said on social media about Sadiq Khan is just basically blatantly racist. And that is the reason why some people hate Sadiq Khan. At the other end of the spectrum, there are lots of people who don't like Sadiq Khan because they don't think he's very good at his job. Um, the Conservative Party candidate for Mayor of London, whose name has totally slipped. Sean Bailey. Sean Bailey, again, isn't particularly popular among lots of people. And again, he was on, he did, rounds on kind of the news networks the other day and he was not very good with the media at all um so again not particularly convincing and the london mayoral election was very much looking like rory stewart would make a positive impact and at this point in time rory stewart isn't intending to stand next year so if the liberal democrats can re-invitalize their soul and find the message and cut through 2021 might not be so bad but of course, it really does depend on who they elect this year. To round off the show, Zach, do you have any final comments? Uh, I think I've, I've summed up my views on the Liberal Democrats. And I agree with you. I think there is an optimistic tone, local elections, everything's in play. And who knows where we could be this time next year. For sure. And of course, that rounds up episode four i believe of the midfield politics podcast my name has been luke james i've been joined in the commentary position by zach green as always you'll be able to find links to our social media accounts down in the description of this episode i'll say at this point as well if you could give us positive reviews on however you were streaming the podcast that would be greatly appreciated we would like that very much but until next time have a wonderful week we'll see you next time and keep on voting <laughs>